Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Y2K and Autobiography. This episode is entitled, Why Did It Matter? Now, during the 1990s, I was involved in Y2K right from the start. I was heavily involved in it. In fact, some would say I started the whole mess, which would be absolutely, totally incorrect, because I did not, nor did I discover it in advance of everybody else. Over a 10-year period, I gave literally thousands, we have records, of interviews on Y2K. I gave hundreds of presentations and wrote hundreds of articles. But in none of those did I really talk about the things that drove the Y2K project to the heights that it did. Why? Well, when I'm speaking, my purpose of speaking is to get the people in the room to do something. When we're doing an interview with the media, more than 2,000 of them, the purpose is to speak in sound bites, and you can't go into very, very much depth. And the conversation has been driven by the reporter, the person doing the interview. And you really have no control of it. Even if you sit with a reporter for two or three hours, five hours in one particular instance, and you're telling your story, you're telling stuff that you think their, their readers might be interested in, or their viewers, and then you recognize that no matter what you say, the reporter is the one who's going to tell the story. You're not. When I'm writing articles, I'm writing articles about the technical aspects and what we're doing and where we are, etc., etc. But I'm not talking about the background stuff. Now, the reason I'm doing this whole new episode and going back to Y2K after 20 years is based upon the realization that for many people, you know, if you're younger than 40 years old, you had absolutely no role in Y2K. And the only thing you know about Y2K is what the media has told you, that it was a scam and it was a hoax and everything else. And you have a very biased view of what Y2K was all about. And you have no clue as to what it was really all about and what drove it and how it, how, how it mutated into what it did at the end. And I wanted to put together what is essentially going to be a historical record of what Y2K was all about. Now, telling that story is difficult. Y2K started, in many ways, back in the 1960s, when we first started to use computers in organizations. And it continued on until, well, now, today. Because even though it's not reported, we are still encountering Y2K-related problems with computers. They don't make the news. There's no reason they should. But it's still here, and we're still dealing with it. And I wanted to tell the entire story, but how do I do that? Well, I can't do it chronologically, because then at each presentation that I do, and I'm planning to, to do about 10, what I'd be doing is covering 20 or 30 topics in each one of the segments. If I was breaking it down, okay, we're going to do one segment for the 1980s, and then one segment for the 1990s, it just wouldn't flow. It wouldn't work at all. So what I've decided to do is to identify certain topics and then, to the best of my ability, flesh them out. The starting one is the one you see. Well, first off, the title, an autobiography. I can only tell the story from my perspective. I can't tell it from anybody else's perspective because I was not them. The Y2K in autobiography is a bit of a play on words. One, well, it's my autobiography. This is what I did for a decade of my life. But it's also about Y2K as something that took on a life of its own. Even if I had wanted to stop all discussions about Y2K in the mid-1990s, for example, I would not have been able to do that. Once Y2K got going, it was going to continue to the end. It took on a life of its own. So it has its own story to tell. When did we start looking at the problem? Well, he says as he tries to get this thing working. One of the first documents I ran across was a letter that Mr. Bath sent to Bell Canada. It wasn't about Y2K. Y2K wasn't coined then, by the way, either. But he, he sent a letter off to Bell Canada basically saying, guys, how about using a date format that's been acceptable, the international date standard, which tied into the Canadian national date standards. In other words, year, month, day, hours, minutes, seconds. In that sequence, 
because that's the only logical sequence that we can use to represent a date. Oh, and by the way, use four digits for the date rather than two. So he sent off a letter and Bell responded and sort of patted him on the head and said, yeah, yeah, yeah we, we understand, but it's not that big a deal, so we're not going to do anything. He wasn't talking about the rollover problem. He was just, like myself a little bit, annoyed that we have standards, we create standards for good reasons, but quite often we just ignore them. We create them, we put the, the effort in, but we ignore them. It's like government reports where we go out and do a study, and we come back with the recommendations, everybody nods their heads and says, yeah, that's a really good idea, but we're not going to really do anything. A couple of years later, not that long, Computer World of all places, large computer magazine in the States, basically the voice of computing in the United States and around the world, wrote an article that was a review of someone by the name of Bill Schoen. Bill Schoen was speaking about the year rollover problem, and he was one of the first who gave voice to this. And it was just a review. There were a couple of rebuttal articles, typical, that basically said, oh, don't worry about it. Well, you know, we'll fix it by then. This is not something to be concerned about. This is not something to be raising the alarm about. Now, to their credit, IBM, which was the company at the time dealing with computers, there were others, I get it. IBM Systems Journal, 1984, 1986. Ohms wrote a very good article. In fact, it was much, much better than the article I wrote in 1993 for Computer World. It was detailed. It covered all types of things. It covered some of the solutions we would have to use. One of them was sliding windows. Uh, it was a, a technique for saying, look, we're going to continue with two-digit years, but if the two-digit year is less than 5-0, we're going to assume it's a 2000 and whatever the date is. And if it's greater than 5-0, then it's going to be 1900. And it was a way of doing it. We used that solution when we actually started putting our mind to it. In the article, he read the following. He wrote the following. Accommodating system support. The conversion of isolated files to new date formats presents a rather trivial problem. He's right. Just go into the file, fix it, and you're done. Isolated files is the key. He then says, in most cases, however, it is not possible to isolate the processes. All programs that access the modified data must be changed simultaneously. In some large systems, literally thousands of programs may be involved. In these large systems, it may be prudent to avoid the cost and risk of massive changes in a short period of time. And there he's speaking to the heart of what the Y2K problem is all about. We have a problem. IBM has identified it. We're using two-digit years. And we recognize that trying to do all of that in a short time frame might be more than we can handle. What the article doesn't get into is how big is the problem and how long will it take to fix? Because there is a finite amount of time between wherever you write in that article and January the 1st, 2000. And we'll come back to that date several times. So IBM has addressed this. Well, they know about it. <laughs> They've acknowledged it. It's an, it is a problem. But they don't get into the details or start putting dollar figures or start giving advices to when you really need to start fixing this. Tiny little magazine, Computing in South Africa. It has a connection. I was born there. I wasn't living there at the time, but I was born there. Chris Anderson comes up with a, basically an ad that is an open letter, and it starts using some of the, the, ver the verbiage that became very prominent when we were talking about Y2K in the 1990s, the time bomb. <laughs> that was a concept that was done over and over again, and it's very apt. It's a great metaphor. There is a problem. It is based on time. It is ticking down. 
So he wrote this, The Time Bomb in Your IBM Mainframe System. Uh, he creates something called the Deadline 2000 Project. He wants people to sign up so they can start sharing ideas and all the rest. And basically, all four of these, nothing much happened. Uh, IBM did respond to Chris Anderson's um, advertisement because he used the colorful language and he did single out IBM. Shortly after that article, and I mean days after, they write a, IBM writes a letter to the other, and this is uh, written by Mark Hennessy. Basically, they take exception to the verbiage and basically say, IBM is aware of this and we're going to take care of it and it's not a problem. We don't create systems that will be obsolescent. He also says that they will be contacting the advertising um, a formal body to complain about the advertising and to stop these negative things being said about IBM. In the letter, um, Hennessy says the following, far from selling operating systems which have built-in obsolescence, IBM strives to protect the investments which customers make in IBM products. All true statements. This is not me picking on IBM. I worked for IBM. We'll get to that in a sec. But he then goes on to say something about the following. However, certain records maintained by the operating systems were defined in 1964. For example, tape labels and disk directories. And these carry two-digit year fields. For compatibility reasons, they were not changed in 1970. This refers back to Ohm's comment that isolated data files can be changed easily enough, but when a data file is being used by multiple different operating systems and applications and everything else, then you have to change everything. And IBM decided not to change everything. They're going to keep the two-digit year for those tape records. Note. Right after that comment, Hennessy says the following, if they are not changed by the end of the century, computer operators could get themselves into difficulty. And that's what happened. Uh, many organizations ran into the following problem. The system that was managing the tape files, I know, if you weren't back in the day, you don't even know what a computer tape is. I get it. Magnetic tape is where we used to store data. We used to put a file onto a tape. The tape had a number. It was put into an inventory system, and it was given an expiry date. It was used in grandfather-related backup systems and usage systems, and the expiry date of a tape, once a tape has expired, it gets put into the scratch library, in which means that that tape can now be used to store a different file. And what happened was, when these things rolled over, 1970s, 1980s time frame, when the date expiry things happened, real live data on tapes was designated as a scratch tape, and you take that tape, and you put it into the system, and oops, it just overwrote your human resource records for last month because the system doesn't know that the data hasn't really expired. There was a problem. So IBM starts pushing back. They also make the statement, one that I've encountered many, many, many times in all of this, is that the notion was that Chris Anderson had a vested interest. He wanted to create an organization that would solve this. So of course he's going to raise the issue because that's what he needs to do, in other words, to, to start his business, the Deadline 2000 project. IBM did contact the magazine, and from that point on, the magazine would not accept any more ads from Chris Anderson. And there's something else going on at this point. All of these dates, 1981, 1984, 1986, 1986 have something in common. What they have in common is that there's no internet at that time. Not for public, anyway. The internet doesn't really start until 1990 with WWW. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee uh, uh, makes that available to the public, and we start getting on the internet. The internet allows you to communicate with the world very effectively. Computing, getting something published in Computing Magazine gets you to the readership of Computing Magazine. Gets you the attention of IBM as well, because they're reading that. But it doesn't really get the word out. So after one or two other articles, you know, pushing back against Chris Anderson, the 
it just basically dies on the vine. There's no momentum built. I start writing articles about this. My first article was May 1993. Uh, silly title, silly approach, uses the emotional language, but basically says, look, we have a problem. And here's how you can test it, by the way. I'll set the date on your computer to January the 1st, 2000. Do a processing run, see what happens. If nothing happens, great. But if it doesn't work properly, then you have an issue. 1993, the issue will occur seven years from now. So you should start getting working on, it, on this. This doesn't go anywhere either. Info Canada at the time has a circulation, I don't know, somewhere around 10,000 maybe? maybe? Maybe more, maybe less, but it's certainly not huge. And again, there's no real internet. I mean, I'm not on the internet at that point. I might be running a bulletin board or something with CompuServe or something like that. But the internet's not big at that point yet. It's not in everybody's house. A day or two later, this little article is published. It's, it's less than, it's about 100 words. Tiny little piece in the Globe and Mail, national newspaper in Canada. Anyone who's a business person is reading this. And it's a little review of the article, which means I've caught something in someone's attention. But I, I think it's fascinating. The last couple of lines. And to think we only have six years, six months, and ten days left to solve this vexing little problem. Globe and Mail, May 21st, 1993. And I read this and I'm going, they don't get it. They do not understand computers systems and how problems can take an inordinate amount of time to fix surprisingly inordinate amounts of time to fix I remember once I had a North Star Horizon about at this time spent about ten thousand dollars on this thing and I remember a single line of code in a basic program that took me 40 hours to fix it shouldn't have taken 40 hours it should have worked the moment I wrote it. It didn't. I was getting a syntax error that I could not figure out. And it took me 40 hours to solve that. It turned out to be a compiler error, a way of looking at logical values that simply made no sense. Now, the details are irrelevant. What's relevant is that something that it should have taken me like five seconds to fix took me 40 hours. And I've been involved with computers at this point long enough to know that the length of time that something takes to fix is sort of independent of skill set. doesn't matter how much you know, how smart you are. Sometimes you just run into a problem and it takes you a thousand times longer than it should. Should in quotes. I was up at Consultants Camp. Now, what's Consultants Camp? Consultants Camp was a group of people who got together every year up in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. It was run by a fellow I'll mention later, Jerry Weinberg. And he used to get, have, invite a bunch of people he thought were up and coming, you know, people who had potential for whatever reason. So he invites us up there and we spend time together. And what we're doing is we're sharing information back and forth. I was at camp uh, in September 1993 when my second article came out. That was the one that everybody knows about, Doomsday 2000. I did not choose the title. It was an editor who chose the title. Why did they choose that title? Because it has more emotional weight. It gets your attention. It gets you to read it. The Computer World magazine at that point had a circulation in excess of 130,000 physical copies. One copy made it to camp. I'm surrounded by 30 smart people many of whom are in the IT industry. They're developers. They're thinkers. And when the article gets to camp, which is a surprise to me, I didn't know it was coming out that day. When it gets to camp, it gets passed around because, wow, you know, someone in our camp has published in Computer World. Wow, this, this is significant for that for us. I didn't think it was significant for anybody else. And they pass it around. And the response was pretty much like the last couple of lines. Peter, you're making too big a deal about this. It will be fixed. We'll, we'll address it. We have a lot of time to do it. And now I'm getting concerned. If I see the problem, 
but these other people who are quite frankly smarter and more experienced and more expertise than than I am if they don't see it then we have a real issue because the issue is no longer one of technology but it's one of people understanding what the problem is all about so I put up this little image because quite often I was referred to as a doomsayer, a prophet of doom, a fearmonger, and quite often I was portrayed as, you know, being out in the desert, going around, uh, trying to drum up a following. I didn't really mind it. It was meant to be a bit of an insult, but there was some humor in it. And I found it humorous enough to contact the artist and have them draw a couple of them, and I use them in presentations. So where did my passion come from? Or, as some people would rightly say, and I would agree, obsession about what UK came from. What informed the discussion? Now, as I said earlier, I can only speak to this from my perspective. It's, it's my, I can't speak to it from yours. If you were a project manager back in the day and you were involved in Y2K, I can't explain what drove you to be passionate about it if you were, or what made it a non-event for you if it was that. I mean, I have friends who to this day say that we didn't have to make the hype, that it would have taken care of itself. <laughs> we disagree strongly, but we do it over beer, so it's okay. So what informed me? Well, there were a variety of things. And what I'll do and what we're going to do for this presentation is we're going to step through them. What was in my head that made this so big an issue for me right from day one, from when I saw it? Well, let's start. From 1974 to 1977, I was at university studying to be a math teacher. But I had an interest in computers, and I had an interest in computers for a specific reason I'll get to in a sec. One of the courses I took was numerical analysis. It was a beautiful intersection between computing and mathematics. Mathematics is incredibly accurate, precise. You need to understand the language. You actually have to write formulas to really understand mathematics. And then what we do is we take the mathematics and we put them into computers to try and predict things. We use simulation models and we use mathematical methods, but we're using them on a computer. And the course is about the following reality. The computer is not an accurate representation of mathematics. There will always be errors between the numbers that the computer gives you and what the math mathematics tells you it should be. And the errors, though, are in the 12th or 13th or 14th decimal places. Why? Well, at the heart of it is a computer is a digital device. It operates on ones and zeros. It uses binary notation. And ultimately, that's what it does. Mathematics is not, an anal is not a digital thing. It's an analog thing. It, it can use whatever degree of precision it requires. It's math. We have... Uh, decimal places that are irrational, that go off into infinity. Computers can't give you that. Or you can have it chug it out, but you can't put an infinite number in a file. You can put it in a computer program, but not in a file. Uh, you can't print it out, because there is no end. Very detailed, very delicate. But what it drove home is that errors are important. And what we need to be doing if we're working with computers is be aware of the errors that are possible within your programming and take that into account in how you use computers. Years later, we actually have an incident. This is not just the inherent ability of computers. This was an actual bug. Something was wrong with the way the Pentium chip was developed. And it used to produce errors in the fourth decimal place. If you divided two, I'm looking at uh, some notes here, two seven-digit numbers together, if you divided them, you didn't get the right answer. This was important. Not that big a deal, though. It took a while for Intel to, to fix it, to admit it was a real problem, fix it, and replace everything. But there's a message here for me, at least, is that I'm not going to trust everything a computer tells me because there's an inaccuracy that's built in. 
Now, in addition to there are always going to be problems, Murphy <laughs> came to play. Murphy was a, uh, a series of sayings. The, the story is that John Stapp, who was an engineer, 1947, he's working on a deceleration project. He's an engineer, and he comes up with the, the statement that an inescapable reality, that any undertaking has problems and malfunctions in it. Every engineer that I know, every mathematician that builds code that I know, understands Murphy's Laws. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. In fact, I gravitate to these little types of sayings. Why? Because they have a life of their own, and they're speaking to a truth. And they're a truth I see play out every single day when I'm working. If something can go wrong, it will. When I became a project manager, this was central to my thinking, to how I managed projects. I was always looking for what could go wrong, and what do we do to avoid that? And it was the first question I always ask, what could go wrong? Yes, pessimist, no. Realist, eh, maybe. Idealist, yeah, it should work. We should build things that work. And if there are problems, potential problems, we need to address those. I'm a fan of all the TV shows that talk about plane accidents, well, whatever accidents, and they go through all the, the little events that happen that cause a plane to crash. It's never one thing. It's always a collection of errors and oversights and assumptions. And if you're going to be a project manager, they're really good to watch because they teach you a lesson through someone else's bad experiences. Things can go wrong. Murphy was central to my thinking. Did I speak about Murphy when I'm speaking about Y2K on stage? Eh, no, not too often. Now and then, yes, depending upon the audience. But at the back of my mind, it's always there. The train you see coming out of the second floor, that's a railway station. Train came in too fast. There is a buffer to accommodate too fast trains. But this one came in way too fast. It goes out the second floor window and, yeah, landed on someone and killed them. Small problem. Came in too fast. Who would have thought that that could have happened? No one, obviously. But that's not true, though, is it? There was a buffer. There were rules. There are signs. Don't come in too fast. But the moment you throw human beings into the, mech, into the mix, anything can go wrong, and will eventually. My first job out of university was IBM. I was a computer operator working at Consumers Road in Willowdale, Toronto. For those of you who know anything about IBM back in the day, in Canada, they were huge in the banking business. We ran a system called Colt, Canadian Online Tellers. And basically what we did was the computer system, an MVS system, ran all the terminals across Canada. So when you go into a bank, there were no ATMs at that time, I don't think. We were dealing with the teller machines. You go into the bank, you go up to the teller, you say you want to withdraw money, they bring up your account on the machine, they see if you've got the money, they, they deposit money, they take out money, et cetera, et cetera. But if you go in and you go up to the teller and the system is not working, they can't help you and you have to wait. Well, we ran that system. Now, during the day, uh, it was interesting. At night, uh, my job as a new operator was to feed the IBM printer, the 1403 model. Feed it box after box after box of paper to print the reports that were shipped out next morning to all the different branches across Canada. The other thing I was doing was moving DASDs, storage devices, the 3330 platters, from one device to another. And every now and then, you'd hear this banshee wail as a 3330 died, and you'd smell the acrid smoke of burnt data as a hard disk crashed. During the day, it was more interesting. Mostly, this thing was just humming away, dealing with all the terminals across Canada. No big deal. But every now and then, an air raid siren would go off. And at that point, we were at battle stations. Now, when the air raid sirens is going off, what's happening? Well, first off, 
we need to be speaking to each terminal. We, the computer, needs to be speaking to each terminal all the time. So if a, term, a, a teller is there and they're accessing it, they can get access to the information. That needs to happen all the time. If it's not happening, someone is waiting for their money. Now, they will wait a couple of minutes without getting too impatient. They will not wait an hour. So in the computer room, we had a pretend terminal sitting on the wall. It wasn't a terminal, though. It was an air raid siren. And as long as this air raid siren was being contacted by the computer as if it were a terminal every couple of seconds, it would be quiet. The moment the computer stops polling that terminal, we know that across Canada, People are now getting impatient, standing in front of a teller saying, give me my money. And the teller is saying, I can't. The computer is down. And we can't have that. A couple of seconds, okay. A couple of minutes, customers will put up with that. But we have to get that system back up and running within minutes. No one's going to stand at the teller for an hour waiting for their money. So our uptime... Our restart time is measured in minutes. The moment the air raid siren goes off, in other words, the moment there's a computer problem, we have a crisis. And we need to be back up and running in a couple of minutes. Hours isn't good enough. Days? A couple of hours, and immediately the radio, the media, will start getting on this. Three or four hours, we're, we're now on headlines. Two or three days, we're making the evening news constantly. Uh, what is also happening, if the computers are down for two or three days, checks are beginning to bounce because money is not flowing. It isn't where it needs to be when a check comes through. If checks are bouncing, well, that means rent isn't being paid. Insurance policies aren't being kept up. Things are starting to get canceled. Oh, Peter, you're getting emotional again. No, this is how the world works. It has to work. We depend upon this stuff. And IBM knew that. That's why when the, the, when the system stopped working, the air, air raid siren went off. We were at battle stations. Everybody off the floor, the computer operators are trying to get the machine back up, up and running. Programmers and developers are running onto the computer floor to see if they can help. Senior executives are coming onto the floor, and we're kicking them off, <laughs> frog marching them off the floor because they can't help. And asking me when the system is going to be up just makes means that I can't focus on getting the system up. I have to focus on answering your stupid question. So IBM, in a very, very short period of time, ingrained in me that computers have to be running all the time. We can't afford outages. We cannot afford outages. If you want to say it's propaganda, yeah, it worked. Was it brainwashing? Yeah, it worked. I, wouldn't le I left IBM with this ingrained knowledge that what we do is important, and when it stops working, we have a problem. And sometimes we have minutes to fix it. In addition to all of this, I'm reading a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Brilliant book. It's about quality. It's about many things. The thing I took away was this concept of quality. Definition of quality, is it fit for purpose? Does it do what we want it to do all the time? If it doesn't, we have a problem. And I'm looking at the computer systems and I'm saying, well, they're built-in problems. Um, we know that from numerical analysis. When problems occur, we have a real issue. And I know that from my uh, IBM experience and fire alarms going off, air raid sirens. So then I'm questioning the purpose of the, the, the quality of the systems that we're depending upon. And, of course, then I'm watching this show all around the same time, 1978 time frame. This is when I stumbled across the Y2K issue. It wasn't called Y2K back then. You know when that alarm went off in the computer room? When we had to re-IPL, you know, restart the computer, one of the things you do when you're restarting a computer is you're typing in the date. What date is it? The computer needs to know that when it starts from scratch. So you're typing in the date. What am I typing in? I'm typing in a two-digit year. I'm typing in 78. And I've got all this stuff working in my head. I said, what happens? What happens? when I type in zero, zero, and I go, uh-oh, we have a problem. Banking, we have a problem. Uh, the data is required to figure out interest rates, loan payments, mortgages, 
If the data is wrong, things are going to start going off the rails. So I walk into my boss <laughs> and I say, hey, boss, we have a problem. What's your problem? Well, in the year 2000, this isn't going to work. He looks at the calendar. He says, it's 1978. <laughs> what are you worried about? It's not going to happen for two decades, two years. Get out of my room. Someone will have taken care of it by then. And I did because I was new and I was young. I was naive. And I thought managers were the bee's knees. Managers were all-knowing. Managers knew everything. I had to trust my manager. My manager said, don't worry. I didn't worry. Then I watch shows like this. I don't know how many of you saw Connections. Uh, it hasn't played on the air for a long time. You can get the tapes. It's available on iTunes, I think. Uh, Connections was brilliant. James Burke basically talking about how things are connected, how one thing can affect another thing. And the first episode was the trigger effect. For those of you who don't know, Trigger Effect was about the Great Blackout in 1965. November the 9th, 5 in the, after, in the evening, 5.16 p.m., very cold day, at the Sir Adam Beck Power Station in Ontario, just up the road from me, there is a relay circuit. And what happened is that relay circuit was set to only allow a certain amount of power to go through so that the stuff on the other end, the other side of that relay circuit, wouldn't be burnt out by, you know, a surge in power. Now, it was very cold that day. Power demands were spiking as everybody's turning up their furnaces and everything else. And this relay was set to turn itself off at a certain level of energy going through. And it did that. That's how it was programmed. Well, it worked properly, did exactly what we told it to. It stopped the power going through a particular line. One problem with electricity, it has to go somewhere. So if it couldn't go down that line, all the power that was going down that line went out into the system. Because it is a system, a bunch of interconnected networks that circulate power. That surge of power on the system caused a spike in the electrical flow. And another relay somewhere else in the network said, uh, I can't handle that, switch off. And it did, which dumped more power onto the system. And in a couple of seconds, 30 million people were without power on the northeastern seaboard for 14 hours. Nothing worked. We were landing planes by moonlight. Airports didn't have power backups. Why? Well, the system works. Why do you need to have power backups? Those are expensive. We rely on the network. Well, the network was broken. It had a built-in problem. It was programmed correctly. It did exactly... You see, it didn't fail. It, was, it did what we told it to. Problem is, no one had thought of doing a simulation and says, okay, what if this particular relay trips? What happens to the network? We didn't do that because we relied on it. We trusted in the technology. And in doing so, we had a problem because it's all connected. Now, this is what I'm watching the day that I decide that typing 00 into the MVS computer is going to cause a problem in 2000. And I was young, and to be frank, it sort of terrified me that something unintentional could have a large consequence. One of the other books I'm reading, I didn't pick it up in 1971, but if you haven't read Ted Nelson's Computer Lib and Dream Machines, you really need to go pick this book up. It's prophetic. In the greatest sense of the word, Ted Nelson was a genius. This book is an eclectic mix. And basically, he's talking about how computers, the beginnings of personal computers, how they're, they're beginning to interact and what we might do with them long before personal computer took off and long before we were becoming so interconnected, long before we had the Internet. And he comes up with this term, intertwingled. Now, I'm a fan of Lewis Carroll hunting of the snark 
And that is a very, very much a Lewis Carroll type of word, intertwingled. And it summed it up for me that everything is connected. And then he has another phrase. It's on the top of the one. I'll, I'll pop it up larger. You can and must understand computers now. He's saying this at the dawn of the computer age. And he says, we've got to understand this stuff because we're going to start depending upon it. And if we don't understand it, we're going to have problems. Now, he didn't do that second part. He didn't say, if you don't understand it, you're going to have problems. He did sort of say, if you don't understand it, you're going to be left behind. He wasn't focused on what could go wrong. He was just focused on the necessity for us to really understand these things so that we could take advantage of them. At the same time, James Burke is telling me that the world is connected, and Ted Nelson's saying, okay, there's a better world. It's intertwingled. It's, it's confusing. And everything is connected in ways that we don't quite understand. And then the advice that, you know, we really need to understand this stuff. There's a whole new science coming out. Mandelbrot. 1980 comes out with this notion of chaos theory. Uh, James Glick is the one who popularized it with this particular book about chaos, making a new science. And he, basically something happens in Japan, a butterfly flaps its wings and there's a hurricane somewhere else. It's a metaphor, but it's real. One single relay, Sir Adam Beck power station goes out and 30 million people are out without power. That's the butterfly effect happening in front of us. And I'm looking at a computer system that's going to fail 20 years from now because we can't handle zero, zero. It's not set up that way. It's designed to use zero, zero. We, we know that there's a problem. Ohm's article says in the year 2000, we're going to have a problem, but we're not doing anything about it because we really don't have a sense of how intertwingled everything is yet. And it's, it's all new to us. I read science fiction. There's a work that says, uh, sorry, a word that says grok the system, grok everything. And what grok means, it's Heinlein's word, it's a science fiction based word. It says you, you need to understand everything about the system. And because it comes from science fiction, there's a sort of underlying acknowledgement that this is not possible. This is science fiction. No one understands everything about how any system works. We simply don't. One of the things that we deal with when we're replacing large legacy systems is that we're not very good at it. In Canada right now, we're trying to replace, the government is trying to place the, replace payroll systems with something called Phoenix. Phoenix is a system designed to replace dozens, if not hundreds, of different independent payroll systems across Canadian government from coast to coast to coast. It's been in there now a couple of years, still not working. There are people working today who haven't been paid correctly for ages. There are people working today who will not take a a promotion, because if they take a promotion, it means a change to the payroll system, and those things take forever. Therefore, they're going to pass on the promotion because they don't want to affect their payroll. The bottom line is that no one knows how any of these systems work anymore. We know about some of the little pieces, but we don't know the whole thing. And because we don't know the whole thing, all those inherent flaws and problems and Murphy's laws and everything's intertwingled and knock-on effects are all still present. And we depend upon these systems significantly. People always ask, what's the worst thing that could happen if a computer problem occurs? And the honest answer is people die. Therac 25 was a radiation uh, device, medical equipment that zapped you with radiation in order to kill cancer. There was a software program problem. There was a bug. It killed a bunch of people. How? Well, it gave them the wrong dosage. Computer problem kills people. Right now, Boeing is having a problem with the what, 767 MAX. There's a computer problem in how it responds to certain things. It takes away control from the pilot, unless the pilot understands the system. Unless they grok the system, they make mistakes and they die. 
more than 400 people have died because of that programming problem. The reality is that we depend upon this and we don't understand it and therefore we should be more cautious than we were. And when someone says, well, you know, it is a problem, but we'll get it fixed. Um, we don't know how big it is. We don't know how severe it is. But don't worry, don't worry, we'll get it fixed. That should have us quaking in our boots. And that's what drove Y2K. Then you start saying, okay, how do I go about fixing this? My, one of my mentors is Gerald Weinberg. He wrote a book called... Be called Becoming a Technical Leader. I was a manager, and I dealt with technical problems. And it took me a while to understand that while the technical problems are problems, the real thing that's going to pose me a challenge is how people respond to problems, that I have to work through people in order to achieve technical goals, and that if I don't, I'll fail. It's not just a technical problem. Y2K was never a technical problem. Y2K was a problem in getting people to understand the size of a problem. It wasn't technical. It was the people part, getting people on board. For a decade of my life, every single presentation, every article was addressed to people. I never changed a single line of code. I wasn't solving a technical problem. I was solving a communications problem, an awareness problem, but it wasn't a technical problem. It was a people problem. And unless you understand people, then you're not going to succeed. But it wasn't only a people problem. It was a diffusion problem. How do you get a message out there? And who's going to come on board first? One of my touchstones when thinking about communication is Everett Rogers, the Diffusion of Innovations book, published in 1971. This is where we get the terms innovators and laggards from. And each one of those sections, innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, laggards, is comprised of different personality types with respect to a specific change. There is no one category of people that we call innovators. Uh, it doesn't work that way. That's how we talk about it, but it's wrong. Innovators are the 2.5% of people who get on board a particular change as that change is being communicated. Early adopters make up 13.5% of that. These are all based on the normal distribution curve, the diffusion curve, and standards of deviation away from the mean. Yeah, very technical. But it's a technical definition of what these things are. And I knew that when I'm speaking to the innovators, I have to communicate in one particular way. If I'm speaking to the early adopters in the process, I have to speak in a different way. If I'm speaking to the earlier majority, my message has to change for them. And as for the laggards, they come on board on their own speed, and there's nothing you can do to move them faster. But this chart, the fusion of innovations, Everett Rogers, basically defined how the communication process is going to roll out. It has to. And, Peter, what's that got to do with, you know, using two digits? Well, nothing. It has to do with everything about how you communicate a problem. And this is what I did for the 10 years. This is what everybody in Y2K did. They didn't necessarily use the same source of data and the same input to our thinking that I did. We used different approaches. But from my end, this is what we were doing and shaping the communications as we move forward, the story changed. Now, in addition to that, 1993, long after I've discovered the issue, uh, Garrett Hardin comes out with a very, very simple observation. And it relates to Y2K, and it relates to our systems. It relates to the intertwingledness. You can never change just one thing in a system. What's that frog doing up on the screen? Well, that frog uh, is a cane toad. Now, if you want to really understand the notion be behind you can never change just one thing, you go to Australia and you start looking at their ecosystem and some of the disastrous attempts to change one thing. Australia had a problem. They had a particular type of beetle that was causing havoc with crops. And some person, some individual, organization perhaps, decided that it would be a really good idea to bring in something that ate those beetles. Because if beetles are the problem and if they're being eaten, then we can manage the 
beetle problem by having them eaten. So they identify a whole bunch of different things that eat those beetles. And cane toads in particular were very, very good at eating the beetles. You give a cane toad one of these beetles and it'll snarf it up and it'll last for seconds. Great! There's only one problem. They proliferate. <laughs> they propagate at incredible speeds. And the only other thing, too, that's sort of relevant to the story is if they have a choice of eating something other than beetles, they will. <laughs> beetles are not their number one item. I mean, I'll go to sushi. I'll eat sushi. But it's never my first choice. It's always going to be someone else's choice. Peter, should we go for dinner? Yes. Where would you like to go? Oh, I, I don't care. Oh, let's have sushi. Okay, fine. We'll go eat sushi. And an hour later, I'm hungry. I'll eat it. No, it's not on the top of my list. For no particular reason. I just don't like the texture. Cane tones are like me. I'll eat beetles. <laughs> but if there's something else on the plate, I'll eat that. And right now, one of the biggest problems in Australia is cane toads. Millions of them. Oh, there are other problems. Unintended consequences. Cane toads secrete a mucus on their backs. Okay, that's rather disgusting. Uh, the mucus is interesting. It's a hallucinogenic. <laughs> and the dingoes, the wild dogs of Australia, have gotten into the habit of licking the backs of cane toads to get high. So you have, you have dingoes wandering around drunk in circles seeking out cane toads. When you drive, the, the problem with the cane toads is so bad uh, that when you're driving down the road at times at night, you're, you're hearing pop, 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 pop. Each one of those pop, 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 pops is a cane toad being popped as you drive over it. You can't change just one thing. Ohms, in his article in the IBM Systems Journal, sort of alluded to that. He says if a file is being accessed by multiple systems, you have to change all those systems at the same time. You can't just change one. You've got to change them all. And that was the problem. If you're in a large organization and you've got, well, you've got more programs than you even know you have, that was the number one finding when people were going out and looking at their systems, then finding all the connections was part of the problem. And then figuring out which ones you fix first and which ones you will have to fix together. Usually we, we fix a program, we test a program by itself, and then we put it back into production. When you're changing Y2K, you're changing 27, 30, 40, 50, 100 systems at the same time, testing them all and then putting them all into production at the same time. Uh, it got complicated. There was no doubt there was a technical problem. And then another fellow that I was reading during my university years, and I'm really glad I did. When I was in university, they taught me how to code. They taught me how to program. And they taught me the syntax of coding. And that's great. It's wonderful stuff. But they never talked to me, or taught at the time anyway, about what does it mean to manage a project, bunches of people working together to create a single system. That's a whole different kettle of fish. If you're, if you're a programmer, not a programmer, a project manager, you understand this. Managing a project is not the same as writing a code, writing a program. It's, it's more complicated. It's another category of issue at all, altogether. This is the guy who worked on the project to write the system that I worked on at IBM. They developed MVS. And this is a story about the development cycle of MVS. And one of the things that he found out and that is that the man-month concept is bogus. If you've got a project that takes 100 man-months, person-months if you prefer, you can't do it in one month by throwing 100 people at it. It doesn't work that way. You can't just throw more resources at a project and get it done faster because we get in each other's way. And one of the key observations, and I'll read it off, more software projects have gone awry for the lack of calendar time than all other causes combined. What is Peter worried about? Peter's worried about January the 1st, 2000, and the computer programs that are going to fail on that thing. January the 1st, 2000 is the hardest deadline that we've ever had in the history of computing. And it doesn't matter how big that project is or what resources you have or how much you depend upon the code. We have a problem. It, we have to have it fixed by such and such a time. And if you can't tell me how big your project is to fix the problem, then you need to be concerned the very, very first day you hear about this. 
simply because you don't know how big the project is. And you have a finite amount of time. And you have a finite number of resources. Oh, there's something else in the book, which I never noticed at the time of reading, because who notices this stuff? But it is worth noting. There's a figure, 14.1, uh, in the in the book, where they have a project chart of where different things were at the time of the project. He was just giving it as an example of what the MVS project looked like and what it entailed. But if you look really closely at the diagram, you'll see something weird. It's got a two-digit month, and it's got a two-digit day, and it has a one-digit year. Now, this is 1975. <laughs> Who cares? Well, uh, IBM says in um, the Hennessy response to the Anderson ad that IBM doesn't build things that are obsolete. That, that that have a time expiry date. Well, yeah, we do. That project, if it crossed over into 1980s, would, would have problems. That project management tool wouldn't work properly. And it's not just this. I used profs. Now, anybody who knows what I just said, profs, P-R-O-F-S, you've just told me how, how old you are. I used Profs in 1980. Profs was developed in 1981. What was Profs? Profs was IBM's internal email service. And on January the 1st, 1990, I was working for Dylex, D-Y-L-E-X, a retail holding company in Toronto. And I was responsible for end-user computing. And on January the 1st, 1990, every single email that my boss ever had in his file system came back and cluttered his entire profs in basket and out basket and spam back when didn't have spam back then. And when we dug into it, because it was my responsibility to fix this stuff, it turns out there was a date problem. Profs had been using a one-digit year. And when it rolled over to 1990, the year rolled over to zero. And when it rolled over to zero, all types of weird stuff happened. An example of a date rollover problem. I hadn't, well, I didn't know what to make of it. I hadn't written my 1993 article yet. I hadn't read many of the other articles. But it did re-spark my interest, despite my boss telling me back in 1978, Peter, don't worry about this. We will fix it by the year 2000. 1990 comes along, and an IBM product is a rollover problem. We have an issue that we need to fix. Now, to their credit, there was a patch that we'd been given that we hadn't put in. I was responsible for using the system, not maintaining the patches. And once we put the patch in, everything went back to normal. But it was a rollover problem, and there was a consequence. In summary, the stuff that drove me, I could summarize the whole thing as follows. We had a problem in the system. We had all types of problems in the system. The year 2000 problem, zero, zero would cause issues. That was a given. That's undebatable. You can't approach that. You can't contradict it, because we have so many examples of it. We didn't really understand the consequences. What's the problem if this relay switch in the Sir Adam Beck power station trips over? Well, it'll protect the stuff on the other side. Will it have other, any other effects? Ah, we don't think so. First time it trips over, 30,000 people without power. We don't understand how our systems work. Uh, we certainly don't understand how they fail. We had no clue at all how big this problem was. And to be honest, if you had asked me, what's going to happen when it breaks? The honest answer is, I have no idea. Because we don't know what the consequences are going to be. I have no idea how big it is. I don't have no idea how big the consequences will be. And I have no idea how much time we need to fix it. None whatsoever. Until we look at it, how can we possibly know? And what I did know back in 1993 when I wrote Doomsday 2000 and got it published in Computer World is we hadn't started yet.
there were a couple of organizations who had started by absolutely there were banks who had run into a mortgage problem but for the most part we hadn't started yet and the general perception was yeah we got tons of time we got seven years ten months two days no worries we'll fix this vexing problem that was why I got into this now our next episode will be the technical issue. I'm going to address the, the actual technical problem in great painful detail, and then I will never have to talk about that again because it will be recorded for posterity. If you want to access the full series, including the video component of this and the Q&A sessions that we will be doing on the side as an added value, you'll go to vimeo.com slash on-demand slash Y2K. And that's where you're going to be able to do two things. One, access for fee the video components and all the other material that I will make available. There will be at least 10 episodes. You'll be able to access them individually or you can subscribe to the whole thing. But the other thing you'll be doing if you do that is that you will be supporting this effort. My guess is it's going to take me a couple of hundred hours to put this to bed. Um, it is done for posterity. I have no idea if it's going to get a following. I have no idea how much interest there's going to be. I will have one other request. You don't want to purchase the stuff? That's great. No problem. But do me a favor. If this is of interest to you, if you found it interesting, by all means, spread the word in your social media. I would like to make this go viral. At one point, we had a mailing list of 90,000 people focused on Y2K. I'd be great if we had 900 people who tuned in regularly. That's it. If you have any questions, by all means, send them to me. Uh, type them in in the reviews, I with the feedback areas. I will collect those. I will put little mini sessions together where I address the different problems, the different questions that are raised. And in the meantime, see you on the bounce. The next one will be available online in about two weeks. Take care, folks. Have a great day.